Hey there, friends. Are you driving a truck like Badger? Are you, are you getting the yard work done? Are you trying to fall asleep? Are you sitting and taking notes? Whoever you are and whatever context you're in, thanks for coming back to another podcast episode. We're so glad to have you. We have been so grateful for the many extraordinarily generous emails from various people. Thank you to all our friends who have hosted us as we visited and we've had dinner and hung out. It's been really a great road trip for the show. We start out in the first segment talking about this idea that spiritually it is better to see oneself and one's relationship to God as an adopted child rather than as a slave. And that too often in religious communities we think in slavish ways. We think of worship in slavish ways. And we think about education as creating people who will be good servants within a hierarchical system. And so part of our show today is to discuss this potentially problematic aspect of religious education, and that is the aspect in which people aren't passing on spiritual peace as much as they're passing on the rules of authoritarian structures and the ways in which that sometimes becomes dominant in the rhetoric and the style of education that we've got. In the second segment, we're going to talk about the good and bad aspects of the classical Christian schooling movement. As this show has an interest in addressing religious educational reform or rethinking the way we teach religion, we need to be aware of the ways in which sometimes classical Christian schooling can be very, very powerful and positive as a tool for empowerment, but also ways in which it can be potentially problematic. And specifically, I address the connection between some classical Christian schoolers and white nationalism and a rejection of multiculturalism rather than an embrace of the great questions and the great books. And I don't want to do that and get you to think that we're being overly hostile or critical in a way that's unnecessary. I'm only bringing this this subject up because I think it's important for us. There is a connection for some between a rejection of integration in the schools and this idea of embracing Western, predominantly white, European society and marginalizing or continuing to ignore a lot of the other marginalized voices and contributions for people of color and women. That's not something that is going to be easy for some of us to to wrestle with without getting our political hackles up, but I think it's important for us. And we'll also spend just a little bit of time talking about the ways in which this connects with a guy named Douglas Wilson out of Moscow, Idaho, and some of the things he's written about slavery in the old Confederate South. And so these are tricky subjects, but I think they're important, especially for those of you fine listeners that are engaged in parochial or church-related schools and education in the classical tradition. I want to reiterate to you that we are very positive on some of that stuff. Both of my sons have studied Latin extensively. They've gone deep in it, as have I. Both Stacy and I have taught in classical school contexts, so we understand some of the value, but we also want to make sure we're aware of some of the potential danger zones. A note on the music. Uh, you should know that the, the music I think we're sticking with here with the piano at the beginning, that's Aiden, our youngest, who is freestyling in the living room. I could never quite get him to record something for me, so I, I snuck this in. And then for the break, the song is an old uh, is an old song from my band, The Sons of Asaph. It's a song called Justice. It's just kind of nostalgic and fun because of where we are. I'm here hanging out in Orlando with, with my buddy Scott, who 
was my friend when we were five years old and we were playing music together for a long time so I was able to get that digital copy and so I'm going to share it with you for the fun of it and then in our freshman year in high school we did another song called One Way Train I'm not saying that they're perfect sounding and some of the quality isn't great because of the way I had to transfer it but it is uh, fun to kind of look back also at the sorts of themes that were on our minds as musicians from a Christian perspective so see if you can catch some of those themes alright let's go Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. Dive. Take your down easy. From bow diving, please. Three degrees down. Welcome to Protect Your Noggin. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves. Sometimes we explore difficult subjects that might bring up past traumas. So be sure to have resources close by. For instance, you can get in touch with the crisis text line by simply texting 741-741. That's 741-741. And if something you hear stimulates a question or a comment, please join the conversation by visiting protectyournoggin.org. That's protectyournoggin.org. Come along on our adventure from fear to love, friends. We aren't afraid to go deep, but don't worry. We got this. Hello, friends. This episode, we are coming to you from Orlando, Florida. Orlando is where my friend Scott Copeland lives with his family, Molly and the kids, and we're going to go to a little birthday party later this evening. But what's exciting about that is when I was a youngin', we put together a little band in seventh grade. Scott and I were the founding members of our little band. This was the band where uh, I kind of fell in love with you, right? (laughs) Yes, I hope. Yes, that's right. You were the groupie. That takes us to what this show is about. The, uh, The whole topic here is really about who owns us, who owns people of faith, who owns people in families, and how our education in religious circles especially sometimes tries to reinforce these systems or these hierarchies where the emphasis is on who owns you. And ultimately, of course, the idea will be God owns you, but then God owns your parents, and God owns the pastor who is, in a certain sense, over your parents. These lines of authority are a huge theme in much of Christian education, specifically Calvinist or Reformed education, which we'll get to. What we're going to get to first is this idea of who owns us in the big picture sense, in the in the spiritual sense. And Stacy, you you had been reflecting on this after we had been discussing something from Martin Luther. And Luther writes in his book of The Freedom of a Christian, which was I I think arguably influenced by a mystical text called the Theologia Germanica, which we'll read from in a little bit. But here's what he says. He says a a Christian is an utterly free lord of all, subject to none. And a Christian is an utterly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Again, this is Luther, and he loves to play with these paradoxes. I think it's one of the most important insights he had. Again, a Christian is an utterly free lord of all, subject to none. And yet, the second part of this paradox is that a Christian is an utterly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. And I think, though there are some things that 
think most of us might disagree with on Luther, things he said. Uh, there are some things he got right. For instance, he agreed that young men and women, boys and girls, should both be given education. Education should be for all people in society. He believed that religion shouldn't be something that you coerce, that you cannot use violence to coerce people into religion. So even though he's a late medieval dude and he had some, I think, very serious misunderstandings here and there, these insights and these moves in the right direction are really important. Yeah, as I was contemplating that idea, I first was thinking, so utterly free, so utterly free Lord of all, subject to none. And so our boss does not own us. And our, and then our work doesn't own us. Basically, I mean, we, if, if we need to leave a bad work situation, we should. And even if we don't, we need to recognize that at a fundamental level. They don't own us. Yeah. And then I, then I was sort of thinking too, well, you know, in your pastor and your church, your denomination, it, they, they don't own you, you know? That sounds you, dangerous for you to say, <laughs> but it's true. Right. Like They that, don't own you. They don't own you. I mean, you, you may become a member of a church, but they don't own you. You still have, and you still should be using your critical thinking and get yourselves out of bad situations. And, and I was thinking even, you know, parents, our parents don't own us, or even as us as parents, we don't own our children. We are guardians of them for a time, but we don't own them. That's really that's really important. As you go through this, or as you went through it, yeah, I was it's, thinking, it's scary I, to think because it. Not that it's scary to think at an individual level. It's scary to think about the fact that many people, even as we say this on the podcast, are going to respond negatively. And, oh no, your parents do own you. And a lot of and in a lot of but, cultures, yeah. they might say otherwise. You know, there's definitely a way in which we, we do things freely out of love, of course, you know. Um, we well, might have societal obligations, you know, I've got to go to class or something, you know. And he says, utterly dutiful servant of all, subject of all, but that doesn't, that's not the same thing as somebody owning you. Yeah. That's not the same thing as you being a slave to somebody. This that, is the follower of Jesus saying, out of this unconditional love that I have received, I am going to now serve God by serving my neighbor. Yeah. And so I'm going to do this freely, but I don't have to. In a sense, mm-hmm. nobody owns me, nobody nobody has a claim even on 10% of my income. But I but I offer what I have as a gift. Yes. Because this is what a follower of Jesus does. So we we free we give freely, you know, yeah. we give freely. And and so then I was thinking even one step further, our spouse does not own us. We mutually decide to enter into this relationship together. And as we mentioned in our last podcast, that it's not transactional. If it is, when it is transactional, then it's a very unhealthy relationship. Yeah. And Well, and if you own somebody or you, you are owned by you somebody, own somebody, then that's, you're trapped. Yeah. That's a suffocating situation that way too many people feel that they're in. Mm-hmm. And they feel as if this is exactly what God demands and what the church rightly teaches. Now, the church does teach this often, not any specific church, but many, many traditional churches go right into the family and say that there's a way in which you are property. The children in traditional society, and and often in traditional European Christian societies, would be looked at as property until they became of age, then when a daughter is married off, She's there's the also property, there's of, property. Of somebody else. This is why you, you know, give the young woman away in marriage if you're the father. I prefer 
I, I think it's a much, much sane, much more sane way of thinking about it to say at a wedding, for instance, who blesses this this union? And, and I, I love it. Yeah, if the parents who, who come, gives this, their hand or yeah, who's giving this daughter away? That's mm-hmm. a that's a that's a that's a tough concept. It's an unfortunate concept, I think. Mm-hmm. And because we have a hard time as human beings breaking with tradition, especially in things like marriages, you know, weddings, even if even if you have an egalitarian concept of marriage, it's very often difficult for people to imagine doing a non-traditional form for the service. You want to say, you know, um, that I, I, I want somebody to give me away and in, in, give my hand away in marriage, which I think is sometimes where, well, sometimes people will have someone else in their life replace their father. I get that, right? Their father wasn't mm-hmm. in their life, so the dad's not handing them off, but it's that handoff that, of saying, this is my property and I give my property now over to you and yeah. this is not your property. Yeah, that ain't no good. <laughs> that right. ain't no good. Now, I know that if this is what you did at your wedding, I'm sure it was beautiful and wonderful and people may be getting married later in the year and you're going to do that and you're, you're going to know what you mean by it. But as a general part of cultural history, as this, as this relic of a past when parents owned their kids and then husbands ended up owning the wives after they were acquired from somebody else's family, you know, of course this is what people have done. This is the way society has worked. But I think we're going to make the case here that that's not the way it ought to be emphasized. It's certainly not the healthiest way mm-hmm. of going about things in terms of our spiritual freedom. And, and then all of a sudden I took everything one step further and I said, okay, so if all of these other things don't, he says, you're subject to none. That means God doesn't even own you. And I first like played with that experiment for a second. And, Even and, I thought that sounded a little blasphemous. And I thought, <laughs> yes, I was like, wait a minute, that that seems a little blasphemous to me. And and that also, I w- I was also kind of questioning whether that was at first comforting to me because I wanted to be set aside for God's purpose, right? But then I realized you can more willfully, like or, or willingly, sorry, on your own terms, be a part of this when you are not owned by God. It's not that you're not family it's mm. that you're not a slave yeah and it's that you are truly a son or daughter of god not a slave to god and the way that you would sort of think of how you how you act or even care for yourself if you're a slave to something versus being a son or a daughter to someone mm-hmm. you know you're a, a as as it says in this verse in galatians that i'm going to read that you're an heir you know you yeah. you are now an heir to the kingdom. the kingdom. Yeah, you're not you're not a a servant or a slave within the castle. And this is really this is really important because the human being has a deep need to be a part of something bigger. Mm-hmm. And so often we will trade a healthy version of that for a mindless fitting in. And well, so we desperately want to be part of a, a cult or an army or or a movement or whatever. I mean, if you are if you are a f- completely free agent on your own, there I mean, that's kind of scary. You know, you don't yeah. have some sometimes it's easier when there is a leader that is calling the shots. You want to be part of a gang if then you're you in just a have, crime. Then you follow infested. directions. Yeah. You don't have to think, you know, when when some crisis comes up, you get told what to do and you just do it and you don't have to sort of have the whole rescue plan in mind, you mm-hmm. know, that somebody else has that is sometimes a, a helpful concept. I was saying that, you know, a gang affiliation would be a good example, but and and that's commonly mentioned by people, but I think the same thing is true 
for folks who go to prison for one reason or another, and they end up in, let's say, like a white supremacist group, not because they went in being particularly racist, but because they thought, well, I have to find a group of people to protect me in this dangerous... For survival. Yeah. But see, that's a, that's a reaction that I understand. But note that it is something that emerges in an unhealthy environment, an unhealthy culture. Prison, a city whose police force is not connecting up with the community. So whatever it is, there is something unhealthy going on that causes people to give up that beautiful empowerment and freedom and to hand that over hand their autonomy over, hand their freedom over in exchange for safety. Now, what you mentioned this. This is Galatians 20, 3.26 mm-hmm. into the first 11 verses of chapter 4. But it really helps because when you said there is no way, you know, when you said we're not owned by God or God doesn't own us, that seemed a little bit extreme. Yeah. And then we... Then we were thinking about it. No, it fits exactly with what Paul says here. So go ahead and read it. Verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this first part is really important because... There are people who don't like Paul. There are people who think Paul corrupted the teachings of Jesus and that Paul was anti-Jewish, anti-women, anti-gay and lesbian, all this, so that he is somebody that if you could get rid of Paul, you can get rid of some of these uncomfortable aspects of the Christian tradition with respect to gender and sexuality and and slavery and all this, right? Mm-hmm. Galatians is one of the earliest texts in the New Testament. Most scholars will immediately agree that these Pauline writings are very early, earlier than the Gospels even, the the Gospels that we have in the Bible. And so this represents the most foundational teaching of the Christian community. There is no male nor female, Greek nor Jew. That division is is gone now in this new logic Mm -hmm. of the Gospel. It's also important to note that when he's talking about faith here, he's not talking about this idea that if you really work with all your heart to believe that you believe in the system, then you won't go to hell. That's one way people think of what Paul's doing. You know, so through faith, if you believe a certain set of doctrines, Mm -hmm. then you will not be, then God will love you because you believe the right doctrines. Doesn't that sound like conditional love? Sounds very conditional. And then you won't go to hell. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying by faith, think about this. By faith, you're included in this kingdom that previously was understood to be a kingdom of people who descended from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, the people of Israel. So so, these these classic distinctions between men and women, all these things that were so important to society, they were important so that people could know who was over whom. So in other words, the reason you had Jew and Gentile is Jews might— put themselves above the Gentile, or the Gentile might put themselves above the Jew, or men might put themselves above women. Certainly slaves were seen as somebody beneath the free person. And so often when we have these distinctions of race, gender, and status, the reason we emphasize them is because it helps to preserve our power and our place within the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. 
because even if you're not on the top, it's nice to know that there's at least a few people beneath you. Right. Until you're the one on the bottom. And then there's nothing left but to revolt, essentially. Yeah. yeah I you mean, know, when there's nowhere when there's nowhere to go but up, you've mm-hmm. got to, you know, there's usually something you want to do to shake things up. Verse 29 of chapter 3 still. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So again, that's that, that dealing with the question of who is in the kingdom. You get to come into the kingdom through faith, meaning you are part of this movement regardless of your of your heritage, if you believe in this way. Chapter 4, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Now, it's interesting. Paul here is talking about these elemental spirits. He's Mm -hmm. talking about people perhaps returning to a kind of paganism. We recently had in our journeys the opportunity to observe a Native American-based ritual. They were following the tradition of of, uh, indigenous shamans in Mexico uh, in terms of how to celebrate the different times of the year, the end of certain seasons, the beginning of other seasons through, in this case, offering of foods. Yeah, so they were offering some of the, the fruits of what they were given. So they, they did flowers and then fruit and then bread, right? And And the whole thing was sort of to give to these beings, these elemental beings that, yeah. you know, and, and kind of Gods say thank and goddesses, you. Yeah. yeah, to be, you're showing gratitude for what you've mm. been given. And then here's a piece of this back for you is kind of the idea of it. What's interesting though, is we're living in the 21st century and we see this and other examples of a rising paganism, an actual mm-hmm. paganism. Paganism re- really refers to religion of people that are tied to the land, like peasants, uh, pagan, um, people that are tied to nature. And so it's partly the desire to have your prosperity or you know your harvests continue to be fruitful. Right. So there could be an l- element of superstitiousness in it, right? Of, of, of concern that mm-hmm. if you don't, if you don't appease these beings that you may not be so uh, fortunate the next year, right? So, yeah. Now, often conservative Christians will say, well, this is verboten. This is, this is not the right religion to participate in because it's it's tainted, it's unclean, it's unholy. And however you think of that, Paul's emphasis here, and, and Paul's interesting throughout because he even has an interesting way of taking, taking on the question of meat sacrificed to idols. For Paul, he says, if you've got a certain spiritual maturity, 
you can eat meat sacrificed to idols because you know it's it's not real or right. it's, it doesn't matter to you because you've got a relationship with the big guy in the sky. In other words, you've got the whole universe on your side when you're connected to God through the way of Jesus. And so what he's worried about in paganism isn't that they're doing something naughty, but they're doing something that puts them into slave a, category. Yes. They're more in a, in a lesser Role, mm-hmm. so you've got these deities, and now if I can get on the good side of the deity, then I will be protected or given blessing. But as an heir of God, you are above these elemental beings. You yeah. are above them, and and so act like that. You know, yeah. <laughs> wear you know wear that badge of being mm-hmm. in God's family, being a son or daughter. You know, wear it, wear it boldly, mm-hmm. and and don't you know don't under underestimate yourself undersell yourself right yeah i mean we've as we've as we've been traveling we have been really enjoying being more open to just exploring conversations with people that have different understandings of religion and different religious practices and yet one of the things that has has been more solidified for us i think is the idea that even there just as we don't want to have a false understanding of the judeo christian god that we have to grovel before in a in a terrified kind of slavish way mm-hmm. we don't think it's great to do that for any other deity right. <laughs> you know right. in other words if you've got a deity that insists on being placated and worshipped and groveled before maybe you got to find a new deity i don't think that the true god would ever want that i know i wouldn't want that why would if i don't want that why would why yeah. would God want that. Here, here's one. Here's yeah. one example. I, I, our kids have been very honest with us when they can't hang out, right? And if right. if they don't have the ability or time or whatever, and we know it's not that they don't want to, they just they don't. If they with don't us. have time, yeah, we like hanging out with right. our kids. Yep. And so they're honest with us about it. But then, which sometimes is, can be sad. Like there's sometimes there's something that's very important to us, and they like sorry, we just can't do it, and then and they won't. But then when like they Aiden, do, we tried to get him to go on this trip and take off a semester, and he would not. He's yes, too but, studious. But and I understand that in him. You know, of I didn't really expect him to come along. But I mean, I would have loved for him a week to. or two. <laughs> right? No, yeah, not coming. Right? I wish. Yeah, some of it. But, Very studious. But yet, when they there are times when they're saying, you know, we want to hang out during this time, or you know, they and they come to us and. And those times are so much fun because we know that we aren't taking away, we're not putting a burden on them right? when they do come around. And we're all hanging out and just the beauty of being together. Right. I would hate for them to kind of come begrudgingly to something. Right. And that feeling of like, you're there because you have to, and everybody kind of feels that. And that's usually, I think when sometimes people, if you're, if you've got older family, or whatever, you just end up drinking too much when you're yeah. sitting around. Cause you yeah. kind of, you know, I don't know. It's but uncomfortable. It becomes uncomfortable. So you're going <laughs> to medicate it. Yeah. Somehow. But when, when it's all done freely, just out in love, it's such a magical moment. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what God wants with us. When we, if when we come to church, that's what that should be. Mm-hmm. Us wanting, you know, you know, wanting to be there and 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 it's, be in that community and and share in the love right. that we all have. Not, and it's not about obligation, right? This the community that gets together in celebration, in mm-hmm. Alleluia, in in a kind of a kind of joyful celebration. That's groovy. That's right. that's what that's what it's about. But the and, idea that no, you've got to come and you know 
make your butt uncomfortable on this <laughs> pew to prove how much you are a dutiful slave to the Almighty. You put in your dues, but beginning of the week, so that you know the rest of the week. Hopefully, you can. You That's know, a dreary make money. kind of spirituality, <laughs> and it's not reflected here in Paul. Certainly, nothing Jesus says indicates that that's the most important thing in his message. I mean, if you look at look at the Gospels and wait for Jesus to say, you know, the most important thing is for you to bow before me and worship. Yeah. No, people did worship when they saw that there was a presence there. Right, because you just, you can't help but worship, you know? You can't help but have this overwhelming feeling of awe and yeah. wonder and, and love. And, and, and that kind of worship is an, an instantaneous kind of response to majesty, like, what do we mean by worship? Oh, you are so great. Please do not crush us with your hand. <laughs> no, that's no. that's slave talk. <laughs> what we're talking about is what, what worship looks like in, in the category that we're talking about here would be the, the, that feeling that you get, that, that inspiration when you look at the stars on a clear night or a waterfall or mountains in the, in the early morning. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you have to be pantheistic about this. That is like you, you're right. just kind of worshiping God in nature. I'm saying that feeling that is honoring there's the some, sublime. There's something that is sublime and it just, and there's something you honor it so for what it is. so bigger than you and, and more vast. And It'd be like worshiping love or worshiping your mm-hmm. spouse. You don't really mean it in that same way that people sometimes mean it, again, as a slave worships, but rather that that honoring of something that's magnificent. One other thing that stood out to me was when thinking about um, being heirs, God adopted us as sons or daughters. So we are no longer the slaves, but it was God doing the adopting. So God did the adopting and he made us the sons or daughters. So we have freedom in that relationship. We are part of that family. We've been sort of, lift it up you know it's that beautiful moment of you know where you know before you You were just to earn your place yeah yeah what you had to earn your place in the household if you were a servant Mm, yes you had to earn your keep you you were there for you were there because you were working you were there because you offered something and instead now you are you are one of of the people that are, are going to inherit all of this you you are part of the family. And you have a certain way of being now that isn't transactional, as we talked about last week. Absolutely. It's, of course, as God being the parent here is going to do it right, if, in fact, Alfie Cohn was right last week, yeah. <laughs> that the best kind of parenting love. is unconditional love. Well, that's, that's what, what's yeah. going on here. And it's a very different kind of scene. Right. And you were talking about like families where sometimes people say, you've got to come you've got to come to grandma's birthday or you've got to come to my anniversary party or whatever because you're my child. I think that's and slave. That's, the obli- that's, that's the obligation. Slave. Yeah, there's an obligation yeah. there. And if you know something is important to somebody you care about, then that's when, when you, if you were able to, you choose to participate in it freely. Mm-hmm. But when it becomes something that you have to do, that. Choosing to do it out of love really isn't in the picture anymore because it's not an option. <laughs> Even if you would have originally had that intent, yeah. there's a way in which it sort of puts a, a well, it puts a transaction on all of it, which stamps out love. It takes away all the fun. Mm-hmm. Now, in the context of what Paul was writing, he's bringing up something that's really important in Jesus that we take for granted today. This idea of God being Abba or Dad 
or, or father, but it's, a, it's an affectionate way of talking. And so this is, again, Paul mentioning this concept of adoption and this, this affectionate relationship before the Gospels are finalized as we have them. And so this means that the Christian community, at least Paul's understanding of the Christian community, was very much influenced by this idea of Jesus changing the model or the metaphor. God is not this tyrant in the sky waiting for you to do something bad, waiting for you to sacrifice your children so that you can get some benefits. No, this is a relationship. There's a certain kind of spirituality that Jesus presents that leads people to call God dad. Now, when you hear that, you as a woman, mm-hmm. how does that, or how did it as you were growing up affect you? Did you, how did you receive that? I had a father in my life. My father was the one that was, that was definitely the head of the household. He was the one that took care of everything. He was the one that was responsible for making sure we had a roof over our head, food on the table. My mom was responsible for preparing the food, <laughs> um, unless it was a barbecue. <laughs> but um, but know, he's in charge. But he's in charge. And so in when I hear that, like I would hear that God's in charge, that God has it handled, and that my earthly father was an, an imperfect version of it, but that was what God was that. That's who. So it wasn't so much a threatening thing. It was it, that idea of control and safety, right? That okay. was that was what. It, and I know that some people that don't have parents or that their fathers didn't choose to be in their lives, like that would have been really scary. Like I would have thought that my relationship with God would have been very. It wouldn't be forever. If, if it, it was very, con- it could be conditional. It could be. Um, but it wasn't permanent. It wasn't permanent. You could lose it. Yes. So you're resonating there with something that was important to, I think, ancient Israel. The idea of this warrior dude in the sky protecting them in a really scary world. Mm -hmm. And that was a comforting thing. When you're a group of tribes that have enemies surrounding you, Mm -hmm. then you want a big daddy in the sky that's going to take care of you. (laughs) That's got your back, right? right? He's in charge. And especially if you hear that that God is the one that's in charge of all other beings and mm-hmm. and everything you're on the you're on the big dog side but on the other hand there is a way in which if you think of that if if that god doesn't have unconditional love doesn't have everybody's sort of best interest at heart that's a really scary thing because now what i have is this all-powerful tyrant over yeah, my head yeah like a big mafioso or <laughs> right. you know what i'm saying a big gangster in the sky and that i could I could be, you know, somebody that he might choose to eliminate. If... Like not God the Father, but the Godfather. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Well, the the thing is that when Jesus comes on the scene, he's moving it even into more of an intimate direction. So it's not now that you just have this God that's up in the sky, mm-hmm. but now you've got a God that you can call dad because you have that intimate relationship. You You know God. God mm-hmm. knows you. You are known. Yeah, I was thinking too, I had this, and thinking about God the Father, we know before I mean, DNA testing, and even in, in our generation, DNA testing became, went to a whole nother level so that we can check paternity, <laughs> paternity way easier than it ever used to be. And, and you know, it's it kind of like, 
it was tested before, mostly in doubt, <laughs> you know, and whether right. somebody wanted to, have sure. to take care of you. Or and if something. you weren't, and if you weren't, then maybe you didn't have any privileges. You lost. You lost that your connection love. to you that. Lost your connection. That yeah. that person, if you if it didn't turn out that they were actually your father. What is beautiful about the father message, or the idea, is that this this uh, person or figure has chosen to be a part of your life in a way through adoption. Right. And that they don't like, well, or even if it is your real paternal father, but they, they may not, they may not know a hundred percent, you know, until they got a paternity test. Right. But they are choosing to be in your life, to be, to raise you, to be a part of, you know, your, you know, who you are and, and taking care of you. Whereas, so, you know, the, the mom, she births you. And if you, and if you were given, you know, if she came, if you came out of her, you know, that, your blood is her blood, you know? Mm-hmm. There's um, no questions there. There's no questions, you know, but then for the father, there is. So the so the language here in Paul about this adoption is really important. It's saying there's nothing to be discovered. There's not a question. There's no criteria left open to determine whether or not you're okay with the source of being in the universe, God. And what it, what I love about it is is that it's given freely so that there's a way in which that relationship feels more secure than mm. than one that feels like it because you're my DNA, ah. <laughs> I will take care of you. Ah, so by getting around that conversation or even ignoring that conversation of the genetic connection, mm-hmm. it's actually a tighter yes, and more secure love. Because that love is, is there like by choice and it won't go away, you know? They're, they didn't have to be there. Yeah. <laughs> Now, one of the things you had first thought about was baptism. Does baptism put you into a slave category? And no, you're seeing in this text from Paul that baptism inaugurates your life into this new, unconditionally loving family. Absolutely. There are people that would think of the father as an image, as a really negative thing, if they had an abusive, Mm -hmm. narcissistic, Mm -hmm. angry, temper tantrum father. And so that comes in a lot, and that's problematic. And mm-hmm. then sometimes if you have an abusive father, then you think, well, that's the way God operates. And so there can be ways that this goes in a wrong direction. And so I think one of the things we're finding in the 21st century is the male language for God gets complicated by that reality. And people trying to insist, no, the, the message is that God is male. That's not the message. The message is that God is an unconditionally loving parent that adopts you with all the privileges rather than putting you into a slave category. Right. So do not, no matter no matter where you're coming from on the spectrum, conservative to liberal, progressive to fundamentalist, can you at least recognize that the intent originally here in the New Testament isn't to emphasize the importance of father figures and hierarchy. It's to, it's to bring in the importance of that unconditionally loving family metaphor as opposed to a slave metaphor. Now, we will talk at some point in the future about the difference between boldness and courage, but boldness is tied directly to this idea of being in the family. Boldness comes from the idea that you have these rights as an heir. Mm -hmm. You're not worried about the security guard as you're roaming around the estate. This is your estate, even if you're a child. One of the things that Paul talks about is that in the past, even though you were an heir, you were not yet fully mature, and so you had caretakers. I think what Paul's saying is that primitive religion 
religion as such sacrifices the little rituals that we do to try to earn the love of God or the gods is something that we can set aside. That well, now and- we're like the big, now we're like, we're matured in faith and we now no longer have to take part in some of those old well, and, religious rituals. And sometimes those rules are for the weaker people, right? Right. So that sometimes in order for us to stay on the kind of the more, the more you need direction and staying in line, the more rules that you need. Um, but when you can embody what this, this love in this family is, then you don't, then you understand what it is to be the son or daughter and you don't need all of, all of the rules mm-hmm. <laughs> that are attached to it. That was it's, yeah so important to Paul's understanding again of like food sacrifice to mm-hmm. idols. The weaker brother or sister is the one who's going to be thrown off if they see you hanging out eating food. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're and you're having a sandwich made out of meat that you got from the pagans, mm-hmm. there are going to be some people that don't understand that you have that freedom because they're too close to being part of that. In other words, they were tied so closely to that that for you to engage in that is going to cause them to stumble, and to use Paul's language. This is what we talked about earlier with you and yoga. So for somebody who came from a Hindu background, maybe going into yoga or participating in yoga is going to be something that they shouldn't do because of where they've come the from. The connections their, that faith, it would, right? would bring. Yeah, but, you know, so for, but for other people, it's stretching and breathing, and they really need it. You right, know? And right. so Paul says, you know, for the person who has the Holy Spirit, who has Christ, essentially everything is clean. And everything is possible. Not everything's profitable. So you might not say that you know, this might be more or less helpful, this practice. But that also fits with something that the, the, uh, the poet Rumi said. I thought it was an interesting statement. He said when he was accused of hanging out with uh, his, his buddy Shams, they were hanging out with the Christians having wine. And Rumi, coming from a Muslim background, is... Muslim friends said, hey, buddy, you can't do that. You're not supposed to have wine. And the response was, for the person who has spiritual maturity, everything is clean. For the person who has a sick soul, everything's unclean. unclean right? Yeah. And this doesn't mean that you should then say, well, I'm going to have well, and, and- you know, permission to do any stupid thing, but it's it's... And not to say this is a sign of a, an art. A, necessarily a sick soul, but if somebody is an alcoholic, they should not have alcohol. They really right. that would be right. un, that would be harmful for them. That would not be a, a wise, uh, you know, healthy right. decision for them. Right. But yet, if somebody that doesn't have that reaction, then they can drink alcohol responsibly. But these are the kind of things that families care about, and slave owners and slaves themselves are in a different kind of category where everything is going to be a zero tolerance law or rule. Because you don't have a lot of nuance when you're not family. It's more just, you know, policies. Kind of like if you're at a workplace where people keep putting up signs with all caps. <laughs> who is that person who keeps putting up the all caps? It's usually like in the bathrooms or, <laughs> Do you know, not the, flush. All, of, all of the shared, uh, like, lunch spaces. Yeah, people are just know, kind of yelling at me. Yelling at me with fluorescent pink paper <laughs> and all caps and underlines and three exclamation points. I get it. Do not take the Sprite out of the fridge if it's not yours. <laughs> I'm sorry. So one thing, Stacy, that this brings up, though, is there's neither male nor female. We'll have another show, perhaps, down the line when we talk about gender roles. But you were mentioning that there's a way in which the hierarchical system mm-hmm. 
hierarchy is where you've got people that are above and people that are below. But that sometimes is something people want to enter into because it's a, a moral, emotional, or energy cop-out. Right. I think that sometimes the idea that it's kind of nice to have somebody else in charge sometimes because when, when the going gets rough, then <laughs> you're not the one having to make those decisions. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you've got orders that you're going to carry out. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of times even in, in households and stuff, there was a way in which I know that, I know my dad did a lot of, you know, some of the thinking for my mom. And she doesn't drive on long trips by herself. He'll, you know, he always drives her. And I think she finds comfort in that. So you're you're kind of saying that there's a way in which it can be relieving to give somebody else authority and power so that you don't have to... Sometimes it can be. It. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I also can... I, I think sometimes that can also be a little bit of a cop-out. Uh, I think that the healthiest relationships are ones of mutual serving to you know to each other and un, you know non-transactional i do i do notice though that when somebody feels that they aren't empowered in a relationship that often it will come out in unhealthy ways in their behavior so it might look like nagging it might look like passive aggressive type behavior i know for my own self in a certain situation if i don't feel empowered then that might be the way i react anyway i should be bold enough to make my thoughts and opinions known, uh, offer advice as I, as I need to, or help participate in a way that would make me an equal partner. And sometimes instead, I will kind of go back more to my childhood and sort of just get frustrated with it or, mm. or maybe even sort of rebellious in like kind of a, by not doing, you know, or avoiding certain things. There's a way, there's ways in which this can seep out. Yeah. That negativity that. Yeah. And if you, if you are somebody, whether you're in the position of power or feeling unempowered and you catch yourself doing that, or you're seeing somebody do that, mm-hmm. then that's a good sign that somehow there's an, an imbalance in that relationship. And, and either to recognize that and make changes if, if, if that's what you want, or at least to maybe separate yourself from, you know, somehow distance yourself from that particular situation if it is unhealthy. And so you can come back at it in a, in a more healthy, equal way or. Yeah, you've, you've, you've kind of noticed this in, in our observation of other couples that we hang with, that, that the people who have the healthiest equality in their lives. And, and mutual respect tend to have situations where neither, but especially the wife does not need to get worked up. Mm-hmm. There's a calmness that comes with recognizing that you're an heir, that you're legitimate, that you're part of this thing and you have the ability to speak your mind. So in other words, when you, when you, even in our relationship, when you feel healthy, empowered, strong, and you tell me what you're thinking, it comes across more in a more pleasant way. Mm-hmm. And that's not the criterion for your your opinions, you know, whether they should be listened to or not. But that's the irony that you've picked up. That the the way that a lot of people in Western culture we talk about, you know, the shrew, the the wife who's who's nagging, uh, women who are being passive aggressive, or this sort of thing. These are techniques that come from an unhealthy, or they emerge in an unhealthy system Mm -hmm. or an unhealthy relationship in a healthy relationship where you are respected then you don't have to shout 
your feelings necessarily. Right. right. And in many ways also, you know, I kind of I kind of get this. I mean, My, and think know. of even just children, right? Yeah. When children do the same thing. They when they don't want to do something, it's not just no, they're not going to do it often. I mean, it will be that tantrum or whatever. But the tantrum they... comes when they don't feel heard, empowered, when they feel helpless. They don't know what to do about their situation. Right. But the child who feels like they can have a conversation with the folks about how late they're going to stay up, that conversation is going to be smoother. Mm-hmm. Go back to last week with Alfie Cohn. If you are negotiating with your kids what the policies will be, it's going to defuse a lot of these emotional bombs that go off in most families, well, you know, come bedtime or time to get out the door to school or whatever. And I think there's truth to the squeaky wheel gets the grease. There's there's a there's a sense in which everybody kind of stops what they're doing when there is this disruption mm-hmm. and they have to pay attention to that person for a second mm-hmm. and try to figure out what's going on. Yeah, right? cause drama, cause chaos. That's going to be the way you finally get heard. In a world where people aren't listening to the people at the bottom of the ladder or the women or the marginalized in any, in mm-hmm. any case. And then what happens is the empowered white dudes – I know this one because I hang with them and I is one – is we look out and say, well, gosh, why is everybody being so so annoying? <laughs> you know, why are they yeah. acting – you know, why can't you be cool like us? Well, the answer is that very often – What's going on is people are finding any way they can to raise an alarm about something that's not comfortable or not right. And what then happens is the the white dudes tend to hang out and say, hey. Those people are impossible. Yeah, those are bad employees or those are bad family members. or Their, their problem is the way they're going about resolving the situation. But what needs to happen more often, especially in – religious communities, but in all society, we, we need to look at what the problem is. Like, mm-hmm. regardless of how they're raising this concern, is it a legitimate concern? <laughs> you know? Right. And more importantly, are you actually hearing what their pain is? There's something going on. There's some kind of issue that they need resolved. And I think there's a, if you are somebody that is in a position of power, I think that there is a certain there's a certain duty you might have when you notice something amiss. I, I appreciated when we were speaking to one of your former students and, and her boyfriend that he overheard something at work or not. No, he was told directly something that was offensive. And he realized that it was actually his duty to go and talk to his superiors about this right. because he was in a position that it wouldn't look like he was just a nagging complainer. Right. That this isn't. A, a, a proper work practice, and this should be acknowledged by those that are even in higher leadership. This is what Stacy's getting to is a very important topic that we may want to come up to in the future again, but that is the responsibility, and it's a tricky one, the responsibility of people who have privilege to advocate because you don't want to, you know, there's people that are worried, oh, I, I don't want to look like I'm virtue signaling. Like, I'm trying to show how cool I am. I'm a male feminist or I really care about, you know, uh, diversity on, on uh, you know, in our workplace. And you do this so that you can be woke and be popular with people who think that's cool. And, okay, I get that dynamic. But that doesn't take away the reality that very often, whether we like it or not, people that have that privilege should risk looking like they're virtue signaling before they abandon their duty to advocate for people who are getting a raw deal, whether it's women or people from a socioeconomic class that's beneath the people in power 
people of different races by standing up for these hostile aspects of the workplace it's i've seen it it's very difficult mm-hmm. i know this is that and i don't want people to think oh here's you know white dudes saying look oh what was me how hard it is to to do the right thing i'm saying that there are forces that are constantly opposing doing something anytime almost any time i raise a concern along these lines it's seen that i'm just trying to be you know a progressive ideologue or a virtue signaler or or a complainer or that i've been brainwashed hmm. by a liberal agenda or something mm-hmm. right uh, that's what friends if you are in a position of power especially if you're in a religious context where you want to say hey i don't I, I don't i don't think the female employees are being respected for their professional skills and and dignity raising those concerns in a calm but serious way you know sincere way is really important for our institutions getting better right so what we've done so far is we've est- so so this first part here we've been just trying to get to this point that the the assumption for many religious people is that we are slaves to the deity that we worship and that that deity then passes on authority to parents and to kings and to lords of various kinds and to bosses this authority or these chains of authority are part of what the religion teaches according to many now it depends on what your religion is in many ways what i think paul was doing here and certainly what jesus was doing was really questioning religion if that's what religion is at the very foundation of it is a rejection of religiosity in that sense there is good background for this even in the western tradition and i mentioned the document that martin luther found and i think it was really inspiring for him i think the the freedom of the christian that we mentioned, that paradox that we're utterly free of all, but also serving all, comes from an influence that is an anonymous writing. It's a mystical writing called the Theologia Germanica, the Theologia Germanica, which is a text that has a lot of good stuff in it. John Calvin hated it, by the way, which (laughs) will come in handy in the second segment, but Luther loved it, and Luther thought "This this is really revolutionary in the way we think about this very conversation about our place within the kingdom of God. But it's not just about Luther. This is something that comes before Luther. Would you read from chapter 38? It's my favorite chapter here on the way that the Christian life works. Yeah, this is sort of taken from the end of the chapter. Christ did not lead such a life as his for the sake of reward, but out of love. And love makes such a life light and takes away all its hardships so that it becomes sweet and is gladly endured. But to him who has not put it on from love, but has done so as he dreams for the sake of reward, it is utterly bitter and a weariness, and he would gladly be rid of it. And it is a sure token of a hireling that he wishes his work were at an end. But he who truly loves it is not offended at its toil, nor suffering, nor the length of time it lasts. Therefore it is written to serve God and live to him is easy to him who does it. Truly, it is so to him who does it for love, but it is hard and wearisome to him who does it for hire. It is the same with all virtue and good works, and likewise with order, laws, obedience to precepts, and the like. But God rejoices more over one man who truly loves than over a thousand hirelings. So this might also be related to the uh, the concept of being a mercenary, right? Are you Are you doing this just for the reward or is this something that you have 
a deep connection to and a commitment to. Mm-hmm. Now, and there's and and the way you operate is completely different based on that. So when you are clocking in and clocking out, I mean, you're, <laughs> I doubt very often you're clocking, well, you're, you're clocking five minutes out, right? You're, it, when you're an hourly employee, you're there for that, those hours, right? Mm-hmm. It's like that line from the Office Space movie. It's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. <laughs> you know what, I, I, what, what he was saying is I try to, I try to just do enough not to get fired. That's what a hireling's about. And so the business owner, he or she is going, when it's a passion, they might put in well beyond 40 hours of a work week or whatever. They, you know, it's not about the hours. It's it's about the love of what they're doing and the, just that, the feeling that they get from, from doing something that they care about and that they, they love. It's not taxing. It's not an obligation. And sometimes it is even life-giving, though sometimes tiring. I think you and I, in this journey we've been on, on the road, we've been doing a lot of study, spiritual study, meeting with people, having conversations all about these themes because they delight us. They're mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. They're life-giving. Even when we're looking at things that aren't life-giving, but the, the very conversation is interesting to us. And that's what makes us want to do this, even if it's not lucrative, even if it's emotionally taxing in some ways when people will, will oppose our perspective on it. I have one more comment I want to add. And that's one of the, one of the things that I have used sort of as a lit, litmus test for whether I'm a slave to a situation or whether there's something that's life-giving is when I'm when I'm done with working do I go into escapism escapism mode or do I do something that I am just you know like do I use that time to then do something I care about because it's I fun. still yeah. I still am in you know I have some sort of autonomy energy and, and energy going, yeah. and and life to want to do something that I find I find enjoyable you know, when I, when I find that I, if I just want to go home and, and, you know, there's times where you, you know, want to drink or watch a show or whatever, just to do that. So I'm not talking, but when that seems to become the way your week went and then your weekends, you know, are kind of a blur <laughs> and then you go back into the grind again on Monday morning, I think that it could be alcohol, it could be video games, but are you just checking out when you get away from your, your, hireling wage right. life. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's really good to always sort of evaluate that and, and keep that in mind because what is, there's so much more out there for life. There's so much, you know, that you can do to have fun and enjoy, you know, enjoy this existence, this time that you have with your loved ones or the, and your friends. I think a case in point would be when we were one time at a conference and I was speaking and we got into all these great conversations with folks and we just felt so jazzed Mm -hmm. about those conversations that we then went out instead of going and just getting drunk in our hotel room, we went out to, to Siesta Key, went to the beach, went and met people, went to shows and those conversations kept going. It was like the feeding and, of the yeah, 5,000. People were drawn to us. You know, they mm-hmm. want, I don't know, it was weird. It was a, a, this interesting time where we couldn't avoid 
conversations or people are even walking away from a place and randomly a couple says, are you guys leaving? Please stay yeah, here. Please we need stay. to talk to you. <laughs> and I had, I, it was late at that point. I think it was close to one o'clock. So we we're like, no, we got to get going. We had an hour long walk to get back to our hotel. So, But, but there's a way in which I, I really like that criterion, that, that litmus test you say. If something causes you to afterwards have more energy and you want to go out and just dance and rejoice, that's a good thing in your life. If something is is causing you to want to escape and to shut down and to turn your brain off. Crawl into a little cocoon, you know, a little hole all the time. That's a sign you might want to change the game up. Yeah. After the break, we're going to discuss the classical Christian schooling movement, something that we've both been a part of, something that we've both advocated for, but also something that we realize has in some ways and at some times and in some places actually worked towards authoritarian Cultures, we'll explain more. The break music, by the way, to remind you, is a song called Justice, written by me, Scotty Copeland, Jimmy Schofield, and Chris Frohart back in the day, back in 1987. It's a little raw, but uh, what are you going to do? So enjoy it. Be right back. Stacey, you and I both have a little bit of experience in the classical Christian school world. Yeah. You taught third grade. I did. We were both in Philadelphia. You were starting up, you started a middle school program. Indeed. When you think about that time, what stands out to you? It wasn't something that you were trained in. You went to a public school all the way through K through 12. Correct. Yeah. um, Well, some of the things that we focused on was Western cultural literacy, grammar, did a lot of grammar, um, and then spelling and Latin were some key pieces that really stand out to me. Especially for a third grade teacher, mm-hmm. you're dealing with these building blocks of knowledge, things that sometimes are ignored by different movements within the school system. Mm-hmm. And what separates it from other Christian schools is it wasn't just kind of your standard curriculum with some Bible verses and prayer and the worldview of Christianity, as they would say. It was really dealing with the world of education in the humanities, tying things to the fundamental building blocks of knowledge. And in many ways, I think you had a good time. I mean, it was hard. It was hard, but it was enriching in that there was a respect for the student. 
Yes. That they were they were scholars. These third graders were supposed to be given a sense of being scholars that are going to read and learn Latin. And the, I mean, the other thing too, it was a private school, and so they all realized that this was a unique opportunity for them to have this individual, like small classroom sizes and this individual attention in being a part of this group with their uniforms. And they, mm-hmm. and every, they took themselves seriously and they knew mm-hmm. that, that they're, they're either their parents or their family members were invested. Yeah. And we're, and we're, yeah, we're investing in them. We, we were in a, a lower income urban center in Philadelphia and we had predominantly African-American students. Correct. And this then led to a little bit of a conflict or unease in our minds. And I want to say it this way. There was a way in which I thought it was incredibly empowering for my students. Again, predominantly mm-hmm. African-American students who had essentially been growing up in a world where being smart or getting educated was sometimes looked down upon, that they had to defend themselves as they went home for caring about this stuff. I started the middle school program, the K through eight had already, or the K through sixth grade had already been in existence. I don't believe the school is there anymore, uh, but we, uh, but I started the program for the middle school and it was a, it was a really fun time because what we did was I, I set it up where it was a block humanities curriculum where we did Latin texts related to an era from the ancient world. And then we would talk about the history of the ancient world. We would talk about the mathematical and intellectual developments, the philosophical developments, the religious developments of that period. We would we'd go through the, the various periods of time. So for instance, I would look at, you know, in one month, we would look at ancient Rome. So we'd read Virgil. We would be working on what the Latin was going on there with the Aeneid and Virgil. But we would also look at the historical implications, the geography of it, the developments in, in philosophy, and then what was going on in the early church. So all of that stuff had a way of helping the young people, and me really. See the to, greater to, connection. Yeah, to see the to connections. All of it. You, do people realize that Paul was pals with a re- relative of Nero, the emperor, and that when Paul goes to prison in Rome for what he's preaching. One of the reasons he's in prison for so long is because Nero had tried to kill his mom and was hiding. These things all fit together, but when you put them all together, now you understand what's going on in the empire, and you understand what the importance is for Christianity, and you're using the the Latin that's not just a boring book. It's actually helping you unlock, uh, let's say, letters between people in this era. And we would eat food. Well, and even and you think about the artwork that gets created at that time, because this is what is going on at the time. Yes. And and so many times we pull different pieces out away from the context. Right. And it's harder to see sort of how one thing was born from another mm-hmm. or how it's all interconnected. And I really thought that not only did that help them retain the information, it helped them to have a mastery of what it meant. Right, so you might not just know the dates of things, but what the significance of the thing was you have in a big the middle. Picture school. idea of the whole thing. I thought it was really helpful. I also thought it was helpful that there was a dignity and a and an inspiration that a lot of these students had 
to help them redefine what their lives could be. I thought that was really powerful. The part that was difficult, the part that was difficult is that the way we were empowering African-American students was by giving them access to a largely white European Western cultural conversation. And I talked to him about it. Mm-hmm. And we made a decision to say, we are going to look at Western culture and we are going to immerse ourselves in Western culture because whether we like it or not, Western culture has a way of being the dominant conversation and you can ignore it to your own career peril, right? Right. At the same time, there were a lot of things we could have been reading from the, the – the, a lot of things – from the non-Western world that we could have been reading. We could have been reading more African-American writers and so forth, giving people a sense that they too had this part of a tradition that was, that there was part of their own national, ethnic, cultural backgrounds that had something to say for the flow of ideas. And so... It was, well, it was a real other, tricky business. And the other thing is, so if, if something is going on here over in the Western world, I mean, there is a way in which sometimes even other things are either reacting against it or leading the way that you're not starting to see those bigger connections, right. you know, when, you, when you're looking at it, just some one little thing right. that's isolated. And it might have been, and this is part of it, you know, it might have been that what was going on was we were co- still continuing this process of colonizing minds. In other words, instead of giving people their own freedom to develop a, a cultural understanding of the world, we were saying, if you want to play ball, you're going to play it this way. And this way is going to be dominated by, again, the Western European tradition. The other aspect of that in having conversations with the parents too, I thought it was sad in in a way there was like this desperation for hoping that their kids can be successful in this world and have an opportunity that they didn't have. Right. And, and this is many of us as it, parents care about. But there's just, there was so much they were trying, they were trying so hard to make sure that their children had this opportunity. Mm-hmm. But then opportunity in a world kind of dominated by Molech. Exactly. And I still wonder, I just, it's still such a, a, a tricky reflection because, again, I really enjoyed my time with those students. One of the things that we did, we did not have exams. We had papers and debates every week. And it was like a pickup basketball game. <laughs> the competition caused everybody to be on their best behavior. If you did not do your homework, and it the would penalty, show. <laughs> it was show, but the penalty wasn't going to be that you're going to be punished for this, and it might not even mean that you fail the class, but you're going to be letting down the process of education and learning. Whatever the topic would be that week, there would be a theme and then a problem. It could be a contemporary problem or an ancient problem, but people would have to use the sources from the class to answer this question, plus a library of some other stuff. And I tell you what, these middle schoolers, in the process of getting ready for these debates, wrote papers that by and large are better than the average freshman paper I've had since 2002, right? Now, we, we were doing this work in the, in the classical school a couple decades ago, so it's been a while. And I'm pretty sure that I would, you know, I'd do it differently now. I was younger then. But what happened was their ability to speak and be persuasive and be compelling I think really did help them in terms of their self-confidence, their ability to succeed in business. In a sense then, it doesn't really matter what the subject is. 
having some material to wrestle with and giving students the opportunity to explore those ideas and debate those ideas is the thing that I was trying to teach. So in other words, so, you know, it might have been better for us to incorporate something from Langston Hughes in in addition to the poetry of Virgil. But there's also something valuable in the simple process of exploring and evaluating any text. could be the Bible. To me, the most important thing is getting people to learn how to wrestle with ideas, how to form their own educated opinions, Mm -hmm. and to express those ideas, and to get along with others. And and yeah, and you mentioned expressing, having to get up in front of people and talk about them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what's going to happen in a work environment. That's what's, you know, all all through life, <laughs> something I need to work on more sometimes. <laughs> so I think it was pretty good for them. But again, there's, there's the downside of it. That is, is it giving them the false impression that literature and cultural contributions from their own community don't matter, aren't, don't matter aren't as important? That is something that I think that we want to share with you, the listener, if you're interested in classical education for your kids or as a teacher or as something you would want to start. There is that danger in having this thing too connected to even white supremacy. And I want to get to that in a second because even though we did not meet people that were in that ballgame, that wasn't what I tended to see of folks who were interested in classical education in our circles. Mm -hmm. I have, over the years, run into people where that is the situation. I went to a classical schooling conference that was in Georgia, and we were sitting around having cigars afterwards, talking with the t- various teachers and administrators from classical schools around the country. And I was new to it. And as I was sitting around, I kept hearing people talk about the war of northern aggression or the war between the states. And I said, oh, they're talking about the Civil, civil war. war. yeah. And they almost all were talking about how the Civil War was a bad thing. And the reason that it was a bad thing, they thought, is that they were – fans of states' rights, and the Confederacy represented in their minds the states' rights, and that even if slavery was bad, that it shouldn't have been resolved through an imperial move. Of a big federal government. I'm really interested in early American anarchists, specifically Christian anarchists, that were pretty significant in early America in terms of intellectual life and what Christianity was supposed to be about. But those anarchists, almost all, were very vocal abolitionists. Mm. That is, in early America, there were a whole bunch of Christians that believed in government being a type of slavery, and that everything should be based on local communities, more like a commune, in a sense. Okay. Communities of believers that get together and, and have no lording it over each other. And that when the government wants to come in and lord it over you, that's a form of slavery. And that taxation is a kind of slavery. And that empire mm-hmm. is always bad. So if, if Abraham Lincoln is a nice guy, but he is marching around as an empire builder, that from that political perspective, that's dangerous. But the problem was that the anarchists soon realized that their best allies for opposing slavery were unionists. That is, people that were going to eventually become supporters of the union in the Civil War. So ultimately, they downplayed their anarchy, the Christian anarchists Mm -hmm. around the late 19th century, downplayed their anarchy 
because of the circumstances, and they ended up kind of siding with the forces of the Union against the South and slavery. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem, though, is what I didn't realize is that this wasn't just because I was in Georgia, and it wasn't just a couple people that happened to be interested in limited government. What it was was something that I came to find had its kind of tentacles all throughout the classical Christian schooling movement because of one person in particular, and that is Douglas Wilson. Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho, is really the big godfather of the modern classical Christian schooling movement in America. And many people have been influenced by him and his materials and then his students. He's got New St. Andrews, an unaccredited college in Moscow, Idaho, that is kind of the training ground for this sort of thinking. And it has really influenced a lot of these Christian schools. And the folks that got influenced by it would not have realized at the time, or certainly did not expect that what they were about was that there was some connection to a potential white nationalism or a problematic ideology. And I will say, again, the reason I wanted to mention that there were some positive things about the classical Christian school movement that we have seen with our own eyes, we've experienced, we've been part of, there are benefits to it, but that as I looked closer into it, I realized that there is this uncomfortable connection to some dangerous ideas, and specifically, again, in Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson co-wrote a pamphlet a while back on the nature of slavery in the American South prior to the Civil War. And if you see YouTube videos of Wilson, you'll know that he, he seems to be pretty sincere, and he does not see what he's doing as directly racist. But there are a couple things here. The fetish for Western civilization is something that emerged after the integration of schools in the 60s. It emerged out of progressive ideas in the 60s. And so there are folks that wanted to preserve Western civilization because they saw it as being attacked by the liberals. But on the other hand, what they were also doing was providing a way for families who didn't like the racial integration of the schools, new forms of sex education, teachings and science related to evolution and so forth, that what they were also doing with classical education was removing their children from the larger conversation and sticking them in a conversation that privileged all the things that used to be privileged mm -hmm. about power in European, in the European sense. Mm -hmm. And so as you're reading the classical works, you've got to watch out for that connection. It's just important to be aware of it, that there were people that wanted to not have their kids in schools with people of color, that there are people who wanted them to learn Latin because this is taking them back to the glories of essentially white culture. Mm -hmm. And Doug Wilson makes the case in this pamphlet that slavery isn't good, okay? But he said that American slavery wasn't that bad, that it was overblown, that really there was a very affectionate relationship, uh, a, a relatively healthy relationship between slaveholders and slaves. This then caused folks at the University of Idaho that were in the history department to write against this saying, I think you're missing a very important point here, that no, slavery wasn't great for slaves. But that whole thing has played out. That's, that's been going on for quite some time as a, as a discussion with, the, with Doug Wilson and others. It's just important to realize that that is part of it, that there is that part of the conversation that says that the Confederacy was this – 
very beautiful, wonderful world. Robert E. Lee's cool, that sort of thing. I know when I went to that Christian school that I ran away from, I was shocked to find that Robert E. Lee was held up as a moral hero in the book. And so that theme comes through quite often in the materials. Again, not everybody recognizes it because it's not something that you always deal with. You yourself didn't deal with that. You were just dealing with grammar and right. math and and memorization of things. So, And I think it's also important when when you are going back to some of these original sources and things that you also build the context for the students rather than just sort of this is how it is kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you, can ex- you can have this conversation now about, you know, what the values were of the, of the time and, 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 you know, why, why this focus on Western civilization versus, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you can even start to bring in some of these other aspects of what, was, what else was going on in the, in the world. Yeah, this is actually something I should have said earlier. Classical education can be very helpful if we do exactly what you're hinting at, Stacy, and something that C.S. Lewis said explicitly. I believe it was in his preface to On the Incarnation by Athanasius. So Athanasius has a work called On the Incarnation. C.S. Lewis wrote the introduction to it. And in it, he says that the reason we should read old books is because people in the past made mistakes, but they made different mistakes from ours. Mm-hmm. So by reading ancient works, we can criticize them, and it's not going to be too close to home. Mm-hmm. We can say what they were doing, that was silly. You That's no good. critical thinking. Right. I like, I like Plato and Aristotle, but the ancient Greeks having, having uh, the relationship between men and boys, I think, was bad. So I can, I can be critical. Discern. But it's, I can discern. And it's then going to give you the opportunity to do that for today. So the person who reads Caesar's Gallic Wars and is evaluating the nature of war in the ancient world can then apply some of those themes to what's going on today without it always being just and making their own controversial. Decisions, yeah. Right. So that's that's the good part. The bad part would be if you're excluding the other voices because you don't want to listen to those other voices. And pretend like they're not part of the, no. the past. If you look at Western civilization with a critical eye, that could be one of the most helpful things you could do, Mm -hmm. especially if you have a predominantly white, affluent community and just all the kids in your community, if they go to the school and you're reading these ancient texts together, also being reflective, not always, doesn't have to always be negative, but to be reflective about what this says about where we are today and how this has influenced us for good and for bad, I think would be very helpful. Could you also back up for a second and explain sort of the the basic structure of classical education as Dorothy Sayers had, had laid it out? Yeah, I think, and I think that's actually something for all of us to say that would be a strength of the classical Christian schooling movement that it recognizes the different phases mm-hmm. of development for young people, and when you get that right, they have a much happier time in school. And it's going to be much more effective. And it basically is broken down into three phases that are actually three parts of the medieval Western curriculum that is called the trivium. The trivium is these three subjects, grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So the trivium is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Dorothy Sayers wrote a piece called The Lost Tools of Learning that many in the classical Christian world found helpful as a template for understanding the basic way of doing classical education, K through 12. And it's this. The first phase is grammar. And this is for, essentially, the grammar school kids, mm-hmm. right? This is memorization. 
Now, if you memorize as a young person, it tends to be fun. We were just downstairs with uh, mm-hmm. the, the Copeland kids, and they're they're singing their songs. This one's not the most uplifting. It was uh, <laughs> Baby Shark, do 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 do, <laughs> Grandma Shark, do 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 do. Anyway, so but there were also numbers and other things they were memorizing. So kids love to memorize at that first phase. And what you're really doing is you're giving people the building blocks. Like when right, I was the structure, the the pieces. Yeah, because you can't really do anything without them. When I was a little kid. I, I, I wanted to emote through the piano because I went to a hippie school where they didn't make me do anything. So it was <laughs> so free. They would have loved Alfie Cohen, but it was just like so free that I'm just banging on the piano. But what I really needed to do at that time in my life was to be memorizing with the, the scales. Notes. Yeah, the scales were so that that way you can play with it later. Yes, I wanted and not to just jump, make noise. <laughs> I wanted to jump right to the self-expression, but I didn't I didn't have the language. Mm-hmm. So in many ways that's what you do and it's not oppressive to kids because that's how their brains tend to work. Then you move into the logic phase. And that's middle school. This is where you're debating and you're talking and that's why I did debates in the mm-hmm. middle school and by the way, I should say in the middle school, one of the other fun things we did was we took like Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, whatever we were re- reading at the time, great book stuff, and we would take it down to a coffee shop near the University of Pennsylvania. And I mean, I'm just telling you, I've never had so much fun teaching as just taking a hike from our little school in this little cathedral down to down to a coffee shop with all the college kids, and the college kids are hearing these seventh and eighth graders talking about <laughs> Benjamin Franklin and religion as if they're in a master's program. It was pretty fun. Yeah. It was pretty fun. <laughs> but the thing that they liked was the fight. It was a good natured fight because that's tending to that's be where that, they're at. Where that age is. There. And then the third phase is the rhetoric phase. And this is where you get polished. This is where you are persuasive. This is where you are creative, artistic communicating. You've been given the tools, now you can play with it and and develop your own expression of it. You know what words mean. You know what the grammar is for any subject. You understand how it works at a fundamental level in terms of a sentence or a, a melody. And then you can start to create something new. And you can even break rules a little bit at the rhetorical level, right? So for instance, let's just use music. You learn the scales in the first stage. In the second stage, you actually learn some songs, but you're learning a little bit of music theory so you understand How what harmony is and all this. And then in the rhetoric phase, you're starting to do compositions or you're starting to reinterpret or arrange other musical pieces so that now you put a little of yourself into it. If you make high schoolers do a lot of memorization oh. and you're kind of whipping them into shape, they're hating it. That's painful. And especially in college, if it's all about memorization but not about evaluation and assessment and creation and projects. They also, I mean, they kind of, they kind of get frustrated because they could take that book and do that themselves, yes. you know, if, if it's just memori- memorization. Yeah, this is why you could just go to the Khan Academy or TED Talks or whatever. Who needs this thing in college? Mm-hmm. Or who needs a high school class if, if it's just memorization? Mm-hmm. So no, you don't want to do that. So that, I thought, that, that part of it, drawing from Dorothy Sayers, is really, really important. And the classical Christian school movement is also important in that, gosh darn it, a lot of times Christian kids are so isolated that reading some ancient pagan authors 
is liberating. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. if if all you could do is read modern like Christian novelists like Frank Peretti, <laughs> uh, you know, who oh, did you read as a kid? Was it Janet Oakey? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how they pronounce it, but Janet Oak or something like that. Yeah, the, the prairie, Christian yeah. prairie stuff or the Left Behind series. I like, And I, I liked a lot of Barbara Taylor Bradford, which was different. But, but so if you, but if you, if you were growing up with just modern texts and Christian texts, then you're going to be starved mm-hmm. for the bigger conversation. So in many ways, it's just like the, the, I was. I was thinking it was so fortunate for Christian kids to be allowed to read Narnia, even though it's very Christian. It incorporates all sorts of themes and mm-hmm. archetypes from the ancient pagan world that they would never have been allowed mm-hmm. to deal with. And mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of fundamentalists still weren't allowed to deal with Narnia. But that Narnia thing and the Tolkien thing got a little foot in the door mm-hmm. for non-contemporary Christian stuff. And so that's good. But there's something better. And that is not just being limited to one tradition, but rather going to the deeper issue with the best of classical education, and that is the great ideas. Mm-hmm. What are the great questions and ideas that have been raised? And so by wrestling with those big issues, you can see yourself as a student in a larger conversation that goes back to the beginning of human insight that was written down, you know? Mm -hmm. So again, there's a way in which classical Christian schools can be associated with kinism, that is an emphasis on our own, not just race, but more like our tribal nature, you know, who, who our people are. It can dangerously get us into an elitism that is not elitism of, of knowledge, but elitism of a certain set of ideas or a certain set of conversations that are deemed by the power structure to be the ones you should have. And there's a way in which, again, knowing who Shakespeare is puts you into the category of the wealthy people that run things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of, in some ways, what it was about. The liberal arts in that context is about what it's like for the free people as, a, as opposed to the slave people. And one of the reasons that we, at least in our day, in the classical school that we were a part of, were enjoying it was it was empowering – to all the teachers, by the way, people of color amongst the staff, faculty, but all of us at that time, at least, were really interested in the ways in which this would give access and empowerment to people of color. Whether or not it was the way we do it now, different different conversation, but that was that was the idea. So to the extent that classical education is helping kids be a part of cultural literacy. When you're targeting what their strengths are for the ages that they are, then you see the success of the learning. Mm-hmm. And that is gratifying. Now, the the one thing, though, that I want to kind of bring things to is that often it's associated with Calvinist or Reformed theology. Now, I've got a lot of good Reformed friends, Calvinist friends. They're basically synonyms friends, so I'm just going to use Reformed. But there is within the American setting a desire amongst some in the Reformed tradition to return to biblical law. It's often called theonomy which is this idea where you want to bring the Old Testament rules into contemporary law. For instance, I think, and this I don't, I'm not going to be adamant about this, but I think Doug Wilson had said at one point that gays and lesbians should not be executed, but they should be exiled, right? So that the idea is that maybe you're going to moderate it, moderate biblical law, but you're still going to apply it to American government. The Baptists tend to say, I don't want to to blur the distinction between church and state, 
whereas the Reformed in this particular tradition are comfortable doing that to a greater extent. Also, what they are trying to do with classical schooling in some of these Reformed schools is to ingrain into people the importance of the chain of command Mm. or authority structures. Again, God is the sovereign of authority overall. Now, what does this have to do with Calvinism? Well, part of it is just cultural, Anglo-American, early Christianity and all this. But the other part is that some Calvinists almost make a fetish out of God's sovereignty in the way that we might say that might makes right. So in other words, God is to be worshipped because God is incredibly powerful, that nothing happens without God's control. As the Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul said, there is not a single maverick molecule in the universe. Now, you already said this. You like the idea that, that there is somebody else that's in control. Mm-hmm. It lets you relax a little bit. Peter Berger, the sociologist who was a Lutheran, called Calvinism spiritual masochism. And what he meant was that in masochism, you're so worried about your anxieties of being a failure or, mm. or being hurt in life that you actually learn to embrace it, even if it's just for a temporary time. So you inflict pain on yourself or you have pain inflicted on you, but being out of control is the relief. Well, the, the patriarchy, so the dad's in charge and mom is subservient to the dad, isn't a side issue in this situation. Mm-hmm. It's a reflection of God's reality. So God is in control of everything. So the dad needs to be in control and well, pastors and, need to be and in if control. And if you are leading an army, then I, I think you do want a sense of hierarchy because <laughs> when the war is going on yeah. and a commander says, do this, he or she would have a reason for it. Right. And you don't want the soldiers you don't have debating time. it. There are definitely or times. The whole, yes. Or the whole group is dead, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole nother issue. I will say that that's an interesting question because it is kind of true. You can't be sitting there asking moral questions all the time when you're, when you're in the middle of a battle. But the, the other side of it is that some have said that the Soviet Union versus the American troops in the ground war would have favored the Americans because the Americans weren't afraid to be nimble mm. and to be creative. Mm-hmm. So in other words, American generals didn't have to always go ask right. the chain of command. Right. They were empowered. They were trusted to do what they knew they, ha- they could do. Whereas sometimes in more slavish systems, I would say the Soviet Union would you be You are one. afraid to act. You're afraid to do Absolutely. something wrong. So you're going to actually not be as effective. Oh, kind yeah, of like, kind of like what we were talking about with the... Um, with the parable of the talents, the person who buries the talent because they are afraid that the that the boss yes, is an unjust yes, right. and cruel master. Anyway, yeah, it, I mean, it makes you afraid to act because you're afraid of doing the wrong thing and, and getting punished for it. You yeah. Know? But so, but, so I, I mentioned that because if you are leading an army, if you are trying to use your your religion to change the government, there is a takeover power and take over power oh, yeah. and things. You need to have a bit of a structure oh, yeah. in order. It, it, you need to be organized anyway.
I know that I know that this has changed in the last few years with the, with the new administration. But in the past, it had been said that the that the Republicans and the Democrats had different ways about this, and that the Democrats were less effective in many ways because they they had so many different subgroups. Mm-hmm. You know, you had the radical socialists. And it's almost the, not Republican. Yeah, well, the Republicans were really good because they were all talking about the same thing. So you could see on any news channel, this is, you know, say go back 10 years. Republicans learned to be unified. Mm-hmm. And even today, while there are many people that are folks that used to be never Trumpers, you can see that surprisingly, up until recently, Republicans have acted in accord. To keep power. To keep yeah, power. and because it's effective, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, so I get that. And th- in any case, though – the the idea that that hierarchy is beautiful that power is beautiful that god's domination and sovereignty is to be worshiped then plays into this idea that it's really important that the that the father is this king like figure in the home and that the children are in these these the lines of authority and i respect a lot of like a lot of my friends who do classical education i think they're doing great work i i enjoyed my time within the movement but again to recap we want to be very careful that there is an element within that movement that is associated with a kind of white supremacy. They wouldn't use that language, but that's that's part of it. And I would say that you should at least, if you're interested in this this whole situation, look into the work of Douglas Wilson a little bit more. I think he's got some interesting things to say, but the stuff that's problematic is pretty problematic. So again, through the work of, of Doug Wilson and others, but Doug Wilson, I think, really popularized this in a pretty potent way around the country, that part of the Christian education is not only to learn the treasures of Western civilization, but also to reinforce these chains of command and the authority structures, the hierarchy, which we've said is counterproductive if we're drawing from Luther, uh, Alfie Cohn, Jesus, whatever, being liberated to be free individuals that think for themselves that are acting morally out of their own intrinsic values. These are really important themes. And the theme of reinstating power structures and hierarchy is precisely not what we're up to. (laughs) So in that sense, we have found ourselves rethinking the way classical education fits with a liberating spirituality, an emancipating spirituality. We actually have a question that came in from a, a listener, Julie. She's asking about children in church. And then also she has something she she mentions about Douglas Wilson. So I'm going to read her question. A question to add to the conversation is why and maybe when did the church become so obsessed with separating the youth from the family unit? I was raised in a very Pentecostal charismatic church. We were ushered off to children's church youth groups and were basically catered to. Same for me, late 80s, early 90s, the obsession with keeping kids from sexual promiscuity was the agenda. So as we grew with our children, we opted to keep them in service with us. We've been OPC, Baptist, PCUSA, Evangelical Methodist, and now, in the past month, been attending LCMS congregation in Cincinnati. For example, at the PCUSA church we attended in Texas, due to keeping the children in the service, someone actually created a busy bag station and promptly ushered our children out to the children's church to decorate their bags. That was our last visit. At another church, a woman tried to manipulate me into allowing the children to attend their children's church as they really need to be used to being away from you. We do home educate, but dang, I drop my kids all over the city at events and they are 
with friends. They walk or ride bikes two miles to the neighborhood pool. It was never about sheltering. I just wonder why the push to separate and the result has not in every case, but it opens the door for sexual and emotional abuses, kids clubs, youth groups, a generation so far removed from just boring church. We drive about 20 miles to the LCMS church. My husband researched several and chose this particular one due to the pastor's meet the pastor page. There was no information on his education or his accomplishments. It was all Christ-centered. The messages have been jump out of your seat, take a lap around the sanctuary, shout an amen, sorry, shout an amen level. Yet we wondered if we had been brought up under such preaching. Yet we wondered if we had been brought up under such preaching, would we hear it so fresh and with such enthusiasm? Anyway, the children are welcome in the service. They're is no kids club with strobe lights and fog machine, yet friends that attend churches with those kinds of services seem to have established better friend groups, like small groups or whatever, and I struggle in the self-righteous department when communicating with them. As we have it all figured out, and they are stuck in perpetual VBS, or almost wonder if our family would have, would have better friendships in such circles. They don't exclude us, but they spend more time doing churchy things together. In the past year, there was a media event surrounding a boy from Kath and an American Indian in Washington, D.C. Kath is just a few miles from us, so plenty of conversation and hoopla surrounded conversations. A friend offered the family their Airbnb to get away from the media and haters, but just prior to that event, the Ohio Diocese submitted reported abuse. The Cincinnati diocese did not participate. Kath would fall in such a group. I was suspicious of the detailed coverage in D.C. It seemed staged, as if they were creating a diversion to the abuse scandals, yet themselves being seen as victims, and creating a victim in the young boy needing to be counseled. My own father was an altar boy in the 1960s when the first wave of abused men came forward in the late 90s, early 2000s. I remember his response. He was very defensive toward the Pennsylvania-based diocese as if he was hoping his own abuse would not be uncovered, which to me was very telling. I have no proof, but the mental issues he suffered, the time period, and as many men came forward, I can't see how he would would have escaped those abuses." So institutions such as CovCath leaving, leaving me scratching my head, how could you send your young adult son into such an environment if all boils down to community, status, belonging? I'm not sure how this has moved forward, but Doug Wilson in Moscow, Idaho, had a case of a child predator that attended his church. The articles I caught were in great contention of what he had done concerning the situation. The man had done jail time for his crimes and was on constant watch. Doug encouraged him to marry. The law forbade him from having children, and if he did, he would not be allowed to live with those children under the same roof. He was subject to constant lie detector tests. Doug has him ushered into the church first to sit directly up front. I'm not up to par with all of Doug Wilson's teaching, but this intrigued me. Again, thank you for creating such a gracious and open conversation. Well, of course, there's a ton there, and we cannot possibly get to all of it. Sometimes we will read emails and let them kind of stand for themselves as part of the conversation, but let's hit a few of these themes before we conclude. The first is related to the question of going to put kids into children's church or youth group Mm -hmm. and that there's a multi-layered but relatively understandable explanation for where that comes from. A lot of it has to do with the early 20th century. Many people thought that 
church was an effeminizing kind of thing, that if boys were too interested in church, it would make them soft. Hmm. And so there was this idea of muscular Christianity. This was associated with eventually the Boy Scouts, the YMCA, the Teddy Roosevelt kind of uh, mentality of trying to get young people out there and learning how to do knots and whittle wood and build fires and all this, Mm -hmm. partly for national security. (laughs) If, If American, late 19th century American Christians were too soft, this was an attempt to reverse that. Like with the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, it was a very much parachurch ministry that had these other athletic activities, but it was a parachurch ministry that had like conferences with Christian speakers. So that was part of it. And that then became something you wanted to get people really into, camp ministry or whatever, partly to help the kids get tougher, the boys get tougher, but also so that you could keep the kids in church. Most people don't realize that in 1776, when our nation was founded, the US of A, that is, there were far fewer people that went to church than go today. It was, church attendance was way down. Hmm. There was an influence and a literacy, perhaps, respecting the Bible, but deep commitment to going to church wasn't always there. That's, that's something we don't realize today. In the 20th century, a couple of world wars, the Great Depression, most importantly, by the 50s, the Cold War and fear of the atheist commies, mm-hmm. the communists, made it so that people started emphasizing the importance of indoctrinating young people into this way of thinking. Because if you could get kids to go to church and go to youth group and get these values, they would not become communists. Mm. That's part of it. Mm. But the other thing is, in World War II, so many people went off to their deaths. Mm. And so they started to make a fetish out of youth. And you get this really in the 50s and the 60s where youth culture is the dominant culture. What the kids like becomes what matters, partly because they're going to go off to die. Partly because high school then is that last moment when you can express your freedom before you become... You have to become an adult. And, and you're sacrificed. Yeah. So, so you know, high school varsity football, all of a sudden you see in the 40s and the really the 30s and the 40s, high school sports becomes this thing that we celebrate and almost worship those athletes, partly because we know they might go off to their death. Mm. And... It's in that world that the church then realizes that an emphasis on young adult ministry and Sunday school is really important. Most people also don't know that that the Baptists typically did not like the Sunday school movement. They opposed the Sunday school movement because they thought it was too brainwashy Mm. and too indoctrinating. And part of the Baptist tradition is to let people make their own decisions and to come to an owned faith, a personal faith later in life. So... And so so that's part of the, the historical explanation for how the youth ministry works. Another aspect of it, though, in modern life is the ease for parents. A lot of parents go to churches over other churches based on what ministries they have for the kids. If you can go in and get a latte and sit in a comfy chair and have an entertaining worship service that is free of the noise of, of children and the stress of having children, then that's seen as a value. And sometimes well, and, smaller and, churches don't have that. And I know sometimes when the kids were younger and, you know, weren't able to sit still and there weren't a, a, a kid's program that we would put them, put them in or whatever, I might spend a lot of the service outside and not hear any of it, you right. know? So the the ability to be able 
to get something from the service to be able to hear the message, to hear mm-hmm. and, and take part in, in communion and everything. In our case, though, our youngest, for instance, did not want to go to Sunday school. No, so or he, any he would rather programs. sit with us in the church. And, but he wanted to. Yeah. And and for us to force him into something that he didn't want would be unhealthy and, and wrongheaded. Mm-hmm. And the, the bigger issue, and, and you're totally right, is the lack of the intergenerational experience of church mm-hmm. is a problem. And let me, let me go back and say, we don't really care how you want to structure where the kids are on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. You can do it however it works, whatever is convenient. But I think that the parents, yeah. they need to feel comfortable yes. with whatever that is and should not be forced to have their child to be taken away from them. They shouldn't be forced to have that, and they shouldn't be looked down upon if they don't bring their kids into big church to just force them to sit through a sermon right. with the pews. So that maximal freedom is really important, that that generosity and hospitality. I think sometimes, too, the, the families are hoping that they'll find another young Christian woman or, yes, or, or man. Or man yes, you know, right. Their, you want to keep them children. in there. You want them to not be fornicating, <laughs> and you want them to have good Christian families growing up. So there's all those all those reasons. But as as we've seen, segregating them out mm-hmm. and having a, a whole community that even multiple times in a week is going to get together, they're going to camp together. These are things that were really important for our lives. We loved it. That was something that was, you know, really meaningful to us. But it's also a place where you have some danger. There's some exposure to risk mm-hmm. when there's that much of the upbringing happening with somebody else. And then you get oh, as far as cults, like, you know, a lot of cult groups will say the parents need to come and just focus on getting indoctrinated into the system, and then the kids are going to be taken care of somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that happens quite often. And in fact, it did happen with the Nazis, and it was terrible for kids, separating mm-hmm. them from the parents. It happened with the Spartans. It happened with the Scientologists. You know, mm-hmm. So it's a very common phenomenon to separate parents from kids. And I, and I think it's super important. As for bad a, groups. I think it's super important as a parent if you do have children that are involved in, in separate programming to find out what they are being taught to look yeah. into the curriculum, yeah, just, be a, you know? attention, just pay yeah. attention because just make sure they're not accidentally slipping in. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. our dear volunteers that are in these positions don't always realize, you know, that they are perhaps teaching a theology that may not as be, you know, it may not be what, what you would want for your children to be learning. Mm-hmm. It could be more of a, you know, maybe a conditional, uh, sort of God that they're learning about. So you should be empowered not to send your kids off if they don't want to go or you don't want them to go. The other side, though, again, is that you shouldn't have to feel bad if you can't keep your kids from being loud and noisy in mm-hmm. big church or wherever you are. And I think this is this is one where I can't quite put my finger on it, but a lot of... And, and you mentioned uh, that you homeschool, so uh, thanks for uh, giving that background, too. There is a thing that I've noticed. First of all, the homeschool kids, there's, there's some positives and negatives depending on how you're doing it. If you're just trying to keep people controlled by you as a parent, mm-hmm. we could do a whole other show on just the homeschooling thing. But homeschooling is not good for you and your kids if you're just trying to protect them. them from any other thought. But most of the, the really quality homeschool people, parents that I know, they tend to be really intentional about and thoughtful, getting, yes. getting out mm-hmm. there and – meeting other people and getting getting mm-hmm. those things going. But the the positive side is that a lot of the young people that come to my freshman classes in college that had been homeschooled tend to be able to speak to adults better. 
I don't know if you've caught that, right? They right. they know how to talk to people and mm-hmm. they're not just, you know, being children. They have adult conversations. So that's good. Yeah. And if they like that and if they can come hang, let's bring them in and let's hang. But there's another thing that happens sometimes with homeschool parents, if I may be so bold as to, as to mention, and that is they they don't rein their kids in. Now, this is going to sound weird given what we said about Alfie Cohn, but like they'll kind of come into a library and they'll have six kids just kind of making noise and flopping all over the place. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes in church where if your kids are just screaming, you're kind of ruining it for everybody mm-hmm. if so, they're just screaming. Right. So what we always do is we'd, say, we'd take their kids wherever we go. We take them to big people parties, to, to church, to nice restaurants, whatever. And if they're just not able to deal with what they're sitting through, you're going to have to take them out. You don't have to, but I just think that well, that's... So you have to... There's you, nothing you, wrong with taking have, them outside. You have to respect the fact that other people aren't able to hear or pay attention to what they're there for. Right. So they, you have to expect those right, sorry, respect those rights of the other people. Yeah. And so when your children are being a distraction, then time outside with them, you know, yeah. um, please don't use that as an excuse for punishment because it's not about punishment. Yeah. It's, it's more out of, it's just not working for them right there. Right. And you don't need – and I'm not – this is not a hard and fast rule. This is a very complicated matter mm-hmm. because there's so many different pieces. What's the church service like? Is there a lot of singing and dancing? Well, that's – you mentioned you came from a Pentecostal background. I'm sure kids can probably hang with that a little bit easier than other things, although our kids really appreciated St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Seattle when they had the Compline service mm-hmm. filled with a lot of silence and singing. And of, even laying down. And laying down So on, on the pews. So it's a case-by-case basis. But you shouldn't be forced to have your kids ripped away from you if you're not comfortable mm-hmm. and you go with your intuition. You should not be feeling bad if you can't get them to sit still in big church. Mm-hmm. And so you should be free to be creative. because And that's, I think, the question. What are you trying to get out of it? Are you going to church just because you think you're going to get in trouble if you don't? Mm-hmm. Maybe don't go to church one Sunday when when the kids stayed up late because you had, you know, family over or something. And you know, it's just not going to, yeah, go yeah. well for any you of you. You think that's bad advice because you think, oh man, I'm going to get in trouble. With whom? God's going to get mad at you for not taking the kids into the morning to, to cry and be tired and cranky? Point is, you're free. I mean, this goes back to the beginning with, with, with Luther. You, nobody owns you. So you do what's good for you. Do what's good for your kids and will help them flourish. So anyway, it's a, it's a complicated business about when to send them off to, to Sunday school or not, but be generous to each other. Now, the question of Doug Wilson. Here's the deal with Doug Wilson. I, I really get mad at him. I want to make this very clear. I think he has made so many blunders, and there are problematic aspects of what he says and does that if you got me on a different day, I would, I would want to really emphasize that I, that I, that I distrust some of the ways he, he approaches education and the church and theology. But... I sense that he's a genuine guy. Mm. I think he's a genuine guy. And when he says, I don't approve of slavery, I just believe that they shouldn't have solved the problem through a civil war, I disagree with him. But I also believe that he's being sincere. That what what he says is that the reason he was writing against the violent resolution, a, a civil war to overcome slavery, which by the way, a pacifist could make as well, but I think he's doing more than this. He's not a pacifist. But he's saying that the way of life of the South wasn't so bad that you needed to be John Brown about it and, and kill. Mm-hmm. The reason he was doing this is because in his circles, and I really believe him on this, is that in his circles, 
were people who were talking about killing abortion doctors. So what he was saying is don't style yourself as a John Brown. Don't pretend like you're God's soldier when you're killing an abortion doctor because it's counterproductive. Right. It doesn't work. It's not the way to go. All right. Maybe so. His downplaying of the evils of slavery, his nostalgic and false historical version of the American South in the Confederate world, in the, in the pre-Civil War South, is misguided and wrong. Mm-hmm. And the way in which bad people within the Christian world will sometimes use this for racist purposes, his thoughts for racist purposes, is problematic. Right? My bigger issue with, with him is the idea of authority that's a little bit lacking in nuance, mm. right? That God wants us to establish these authorities and the male authority. Well, one of the ways that this becomes really problematic in churches and religious communities is that people that don't have the proper training in something are given authority and responsibilities that they should not have. Mm. And it's because they're white dudes that have a theology degree, all right? And I know that I fall into this all the time. I'm like, hey, I'm like a white dude that grew up in evangelicalism, so I start to think that I can dabble in anything, including anthropology and sociology or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I get this. But but here's where it becomes problematic, and that is he was doing counseling for a young man who was a pedophile. Mm-hmm. Now, his education, I don't think, was sufficient for him to be able to evaluate the danger that this young man posed to other people Mm -hmm. in the congregation and elsewhere, right? And then he then, after his pastoral counseling and biblical counseling, which I've got other things to talk about maybe some other day, biblical counseling devoid of clinical research is a dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. And lack of recognition of the way human sexuality works and the brain works is going to get you into trouble. Mm -hmm. And so he vouched for this kid to a judge. He then had his own child and then there was some sexual gratification. It's um, it's, um, ambiguous. I will link on protectyournoggin.org. Go to this show's page and I will link to a story that talks about what was up with with this kid. But basically, uh, it, it... continued. And so in many ways, Doug Wilson is seen by some as responsible for allowing this to be tolerated by the community of the church. So it's a tricky situation. You're going to do, do your own research on it. But ultimately, what I think the problem is, is not listening enough to the vulnerable in these circles of the fetish of sovereignty mm-hmm. and power. And the ability for a guy who has a theology degree to make the determination that this person can get married and have kids and be a part of a community that has vulnerable people in it, that shows a kind of lack of professional training. So I think what you're suggesting is to, especially you know, as pastors or in any position that you're in, when, when you are, are not qualified or, or to recognize your own limits right. and then bring in the proper authorities on the matter to right. help navigate some of these trickier right. situations and offer to, to come up with a solution that's best for everybody. And finally, with respect to the question of the Catholic Church and all that, I think that's really poignant that sometimes people don't want these things to come out because then they have to deal with the stigma, the the rehashing of these old wounds, the picking at the scabs. I, I have deep, deep compassion for that. And one of the things, friends, we have to realize is as much as we want to encourage people to have their voice and to 
to do what they need to do to oppose their victimizers and abusive people in their lives. We also need to give people permission to take things at their own pace. You know, like in addition to having somebody traumatize you, being forced to then carry that in a public way is more than a lot of people. That's should, an individual yeah. decision. Right. So, so a lot of compassion for that. It's an understandable phenomenon. It's an unfortunate phenomenon. And I really do agree with you that sometimes dioceses, churches in general will try to deflect from their own misdeeds or failure to pay attention to the misdeeds. Mm-hmm. And will will kind of divert to other controversies, but uh, but in this case, I think it's important for us to realize that that because of that, if your own if your own father isn't going to come out and and report some of these things, this goes back to something we've talked about before. That just because somebody doesn't report something for a long time doesn't mean that it didn't happen, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't take it seriously. If you find yourself in a position where you need to tell your truth, then. Know that you are loved. Know that you have a right to that. Know that you are free to be bold because you are not a slave. You are an heir. So don't worry. You got this. So however you proceed, peace upon peace.